this morning, I wanted to read Exodus chapter 10 to start out. It has the plague of the locusts and the plague of darkness in it. With that, that's the eighth and the ninth plague, and then that sets us up for the, the tenth plague, the final, and then the Passover leaving. Um, what I'm finding is that each of these plagues shows a little bit about who God is and who we as people are, and there are other passages in Scripture that we could go to to learn even more about what um, God wants to do with his people and how he interacts with us. This morning, I have several um, branches of thought that I want to go into as we read this. And so first of all, I want you to, as we go through, just consider what is happening here in a literal sense. And by a literal sense, I mean like if you think what would your neighborhood look like in these circumstances. And I don't know if it's fair to say, um, you know, Pharaoh, Washington, D.C., that seems too far when you look at the city of e at the town, the country of Egypt. It's more like what's happening in the governor's mansion and, uh, you know, at our uh, state capital and what's happening here. That's more what it feels like. And so just imagine it as a, an actual something going on here and just consider what, what would you think? What would you feel? And so you have to sort of put yourself into the Egyptians' shoes because the difference that God is making between his children and the Egyptians. So if you want to be fully experiencing what it's like having a plague of locusts, you have to be an Egyptian, okay? So let's read Exodus chapter 10, starting in verse 1. Now the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine before him. Now I want you to notice um, right there in verse, uh, in the previous chapter it said, Pharaoh sinned and sinned yet more and hardened his heart, he and his servants. And now God takes credit for that hardening of the heart. So this, this whole business of hardening your heart is really a serious thing that we need to take into account because one thing is sure, God is going to get the glory and God is going to accomplish what he sets out to accomplish. And it goes much better with the human beings who submit and give themselves to the Lord than for those who harden their heart and reject what God is doing. And there are many ways to harden our hearts. And I think we talked about some of those last week and, and we will probably continue that conversation just in general because of what happens with the children of Israel in the coming chapters. So in continuation here, verse two, it says um, that this is why he says he hardened the heart, that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your son's son the mighty things I have done in Egypt and my signs which, which I have done among them that you may know that I am the Lord. So what it when I read this, I see a slight shift between God saying, I want all the Egyptians to know that there is a God in heaven. And now he's telling Moses, I want you and your son and your son's sons to know what I did in Egypt. And so there is a certain amount of the Egyptian plagues that were done for the sake of the Egyptians to show that there is a God in heaven. And it at the same time also applies to the children of Israel to say, this is for you to remember what I did, that with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, I delivered you, and here are all the things I did leading up to it. 
Verse 3, so Moses and Aaron came into Pharaoh and said to him, thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. Or else, if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your territory and they shall cover the face of the earth so that no one will be able to see the earth. They will cover the face of the earth so that no one will be able to see the earth. And they shall eat the residue of what is left. Key word, what is left. Uh, we've been told before what has been destroyed and what is left. And so everything that's left is about to be destroyed, which remains to you from the hail. And they shall eat every tree which grows up for you out of the field. They shall fill your houses, the houses of all your servants and the houses of all the Egyptians, which neither your fathers nor your father's fathers have seen since the day that they were on the earth to this day. And he turned and went out from Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not know, do you not yet know that Egypt is destroyed? In this moment, I believe the servants have somewhat humbled themselves, and they're saying, Look, just let him go. Just let him go. This, this is, there's no use. Even if they're not recognizing that God is the Lord of lords and King of kings, they're at least recognizing that the God of Moses and Aaron is more mighty than the gods of Egypt. They're at least recognizing that. And they're saying, can you just let him go? Because this is destroying us. And so in verse eight, it just keeps going. Nothing about Pharaoh. Because Moses, well, well, it doesn't say what was happening in Pharaoh's heart. Let me just clarify that. Because now Moses and Aaron, verse eight, so Moses and Aaron were brought again to Pharaoh and he said to them, go serve the Lord your God. Who are the ones, who are the ones that are going? So he still hasn't gotten it. He doesn't understand what they've been saying all along. We are all going to leave. We're all going out. We're all going to worship the Lord. So he's still, he's like, okay, servants say go. Okay, Moses, Aaron, come here. And so again, it's one of those scenarios where I'm like, the locusts are everywhere. And so in the middle of this, he's kind of like distractedly going, I hate what's happening to me. So, okay, what would it take to make this go away? Verse nine, Moses said, we will go with our young and our old, with our sons and our daughters, with our flocks and our herds, we will go, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. Then he said to them, the Lord had better be with you when I let you and your little ones go. Beware for evil is ahead of you. Not so. Go now, you who are men, and serve the Lord, for, what is, for that is what you desired. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. This to me is absolutely fascinating to me, that as the locusts are everywhere on the face of the earth so that the earth cannot be seen, that he comes and says, tell me again, oh, wait a minute, not just you guys? No, everyone, no, you're not all leaving. This is not, you, no, you can't do this. He's known this since Moses came. He's known this for a while, but he has hardened his heart. He is convinced that somehow he's going to win against God. He thinks that he can outlast this. Now, if you think of the history that they might have studied as a Pharaoh, he would probably have studied the history of what happened during the years of drought and how Egypt had actually saved the rest of the territory around them. And if he studied this from an Egyptian worldview that, puts, that gives the gods of the Egypts the credit for this, then he is not understanding that it was this same God that actually rescued Egypt during that time. And it was actually this same God that protected them and used them as a storehouse for the nations around them. And so depending on how he looked at history, 
he's not getting it. He thinks that the Egyptian God did this. And so this is why I think uh, in a minute when we get to the historical part of this, this is why it's important how we look at history. So he thinks somehow that he can still win. And so it says, well, I, so I, I'm confusing timeline here because now it says that, look, that Moses goes out and stretches out his hand and now the locusts come. So, the, so it seems that the servants are saying, even before the locusts come, they're saying, um, why don't we not do this part? Um, we still have the wheat and uh, I forget which grain. There were two grains that were still left standing in the field that had not yet been destroyed because they were not in the head, whereas the ones that had been in the head had been pretty much destroyed by the hail. And so, I'm sorry, I, I got ahead of myself here. So, in it, so it says now, uh, verse 12, then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every herb of the land, all that the hail has left. Verse 13, so Moses stretched out his rod over the land of Egypt. The Lord brought an east wind on the land all that day and all that night. This is interesting, and I, this is the reason. I, anyway, um, the fact that God says, I'm going to do this, and then he brings in the wind for a day and a night, that's fascinating to me. It's not an immediate thing. He says, I'm going to do this. So he leaves Pharaoh. Pharaoh has said his thing, and now the wind is blowing. And it says in verse 14, and the locusts went up. Well, when it was morning, the east wind brought the locusts. Verse 14, and the locusts went up over all the land of Egypt and rested on all the territory of Egypt. They were very severe. Previously, there had been no such locusts as they, nor shall there be such after them. For they covered the face of the whole earth so that the land was darkened. They ate every herb of the land and all the food of the trees which the hail had left. So there remained nothing green on the trees or on the plants of the fields throughout all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron in haste and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now, therefore, please forgive me my sin only this once and entreat the Lord your God that he may take away from me this death only. So he went out from Pharaoh and entreated the Lord. And the Lord turned a very strong west wind, which took the locusts away and blew them into the Red Sea. There remained not one locust in all the territory of Egypt, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. He did not let the children of Israel go. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, darkness which may even be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. And they did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. That's a cool mind picture. to think that the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. Verse 24, Then Pharaoh called to Moses and said, Go, serve the Lord. Only let your flocks and your herds be kept back. Let your little ones also go with you. Okay, you can take your kids, but no, no animals. Verse 25, But Moses said, You must also give us sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also shall go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind, for we must take some of them to serve the Lord our God. And even we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. Verse 27, But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Take heed to yourself, and see my face no more. For in the day you see my face, you shall die. So Moses said, You have spoken well. I will never see your face again. So we have this, these accounts, the locusts, and the darkness. Now, what happens for me is when I start reading through these, uh, I've read through them several times, and I get 
it's like the things that happen with one, with the flies or the lice or the other, they, get, they begin melding together in my head. And so there's a lot happening with this. And so I think it is possible that we could spend a lot of time delving into what are the differences between each of the plagues, how do they impact the people, what does it do, uh, and, and, and if we could recreate a model and say, well, here's what frogs do to the land, here's what lice do, here's, if we could do this, we could get a bit of a picture of an understanding. What I was wanting to do this week, as I was looking at this, I, I had wanted to look at several sections of scripture and just think about the eternal impact that happens here. Because we're about to get to the 10th plague, the death of the firstborn, which then that shows, uh, that introduces Passover. And so much of our Christian faith, much of the work of Christ is foreshadowed here in what is about to happen. And in some ways you could say that all the plagues that we see here, that we've seen up till now, the nine plagues, that many of these are foreshadowings or just pictures of the curse and the brokenness that came into the world through sin. And so you could look at it that way and we could make a lot of, of, of we could connect things together, right? There's a, there's a situation that, as I was reading through this, I've been every, um, every time waiting and thinking, well, maybe next time it will fit better. It doesn't fully fit today, but I wanted to talk about this. If you watch the the um, patterns of evidence on the Exodus, in that documentary, there is a poem, an Egyptian poem or Egyptian literature that's mentioned. And this particular Egyptian literature that's mentioned has phrases in it that can remind you of some of the plagues that are happening. And so I wanted to go read through those. And so I did. I read through the literature. There's actually several pieces of it. The one that was quoted is the one that I'm focusing on. And it's the, it's the admonitions of an Egyptian sage is what the, uh, the first translation of it was called um, in a book by Alan H. Gardiner. And it's from one papyrus that we have, the papyrus 344 of Leiden, and it's part of this, it comes from, originally it was found either in what we would, well, they called it Memphis at the time, Saqqara, I believe is the town that it's called now, but it's in Egypt. It's a place with a lot of structures and stuff there. So this one document came from Egypt. We have it. As best as they can date it, it seems to be a copy of original, of, of, of other um, papyruses and potentially in this particular one it might actually have um, it might be it was either copied by two people or, or different times or it is copied from two different people or different times and so there's like different pieces of this so when it comes to Egyptian literature we actually have quite a bit of it with the hieroglyphics and stuff it takes quite a bit of work for the people to be able to translate these and so as you look at this particular bit of the hieroglyphics, and I'm bringing it up because it has, it has, this, it has phrases like this in it. Um, indeed, hearts are violent, pestilences throughout the land, blood is everywhere, death is not lacking, and the mummy cloth speaks even before one comes near it. And so it has that, that phrase, blood is everywhere, but it also has these other little things in it 
Uh, like right before this, it said, poor men have become owners of wealth. He who could not make sandals for himself is now a possessor of riches. Indeed, men slaves, their hearts are sad, and magistrates do not fraternize with their people when they shout. But if you keep reading farther down, it suddenly goes, it says that the, that the magistrates themselves are sad and the slaves are rejoicing. So here's, an, here's another section of it. It says, indeed, the river is blood, yet men drink of it. Men shrink from human beings and thirst after water. Indeed, gates, columns, and walls are burnt up while the hall of the palace stands firm and endures. And so it has phrases like this in it. Indeed, the ship of the southerners has broken up. Towns are destroyed and upper Egypt has become an empty waste. So when you read through it, you find pieces that sound very much like war. Sometimes it sounds like civil war because it says you're bro- you're fight- they're fighting their brothers. Sometimes it sounds like there are other people coming in. And so the the it is interesting to consider what exactly was this guy writing about. And that was what I was going to talk about, but when I went to find the text and the, the translations, we have a, so we have the, the book, Admonitions of an Egyptian Sage, that I mentioned, Alan H. Gardner. So we have his translation, and I believe he, so, so this papyrus, by the way, was discovered like in the 18, like 1828 time frame. So it's, it's now about 200 years old that we have discovered it and have had it in museums and people have been studying it for about 200 years. Previously, it was, they haven't found any other papyruses to be like, okay, this verifies this one. So it's just the one thing that we found in Egypt. And so when you read through it, and I brought the whole thing here, uh, the whole thing here just to look at it. Um, it has like fascinating little bits of it because like the builders of pyramids have become cultivators like, that's just a phrase here, and you have other things. As you read through it, you're, when I try to read through it to get a continuing thought, what I, I kind of had to agree with part of what they were saying is that they, they felt like this was a bit of a collection of admonitions or wise sayings. Now, here's where it gets a little interesting, and this is what I wanted to talk about for us today. When I was looking at this, And I was, you know, you, you go through and you read the different pieces because what happens, everyone agrees that this came at a time, that this was written during a time when there was great instability in Egypt. And that during this time of great instability in Egypt, that there was a, right down here it says that, um, behold, things have been done which have not happened for a long time past the king has been deposed by the rabble. And so, behold, it has befallen that the land has been deprived of the kingship by a few lawless men. And so these are things that I can easily say, okay, if, if you're calling the Hebrews the rabble and the king is trying to go get the, the rabble and bring them under and then he dies in the Red Sea, the, the report back home is that somehow the rabble has killed the king and so they have the few lawless men who will not obey. So I can totally see how this could apply to our time of the plagues. It is not a complete moment where it gives a whole list of everything that's happening. So I wanted to compare this bit of literature with the Hebrew literature that was written some a, a, a bit later. 
And I'm sorry, I didn't give you the scripture earlier. It is Psalms. Psalm 105. Yeah, in Psalm 105, if we start reading in verse 23, so it'd be Psalm 105, 23, and we'll read it uh, through 38. So this is Hebrew literature. And it says, Israel also came into Egypt. Jacob dwelt in the land of Ham. Verse 24, he increased his people greatly and made them stronger than their enemies. He turned their heart to hate his people, to deal craftily with his servants. Talking about the Egyptians, the the sons of Ham. Verse 26, he sent Moses his servant and Aaron whom he had chosen. They performed his signs among them and wonders in the land of Ham. He sent darkness and made it dark. They did not rebel against his word. He turned their waters into blood and killed their fish. Their land abounded with frogs, even in the chambers of their kings. He spoke, and there came swarms of flies and lice in all their territory. He gave them hail for rain and flaming fire in their land. He struck their vines also and their fig trees and splintered the trees of their territory. He spoke, and locusts came, young locusts without number, and ate up all the vegetation in their land and devoured the fruit of their ground. He also destroyed all the firstborn in their land, the first of all their strength. He also brought them out with silver and gold, and there was none feeble among his tribe. Egypt was glad when they departed, for the fear of them had fallen upon them. So I I read through this, and because it's in the Psalms, it has a lot of the, the actual history from the Hebrew side of what it looked like. When I read over here, I have several questions. One is either the writer of this is writing about several different things that all happened in a lifetime, um, because we don't actually know, because of the Egyptian chronology, there are some issues that we have of when other things happened in Egypt once the children of Israel left. How did they? We know that later Egypt actually welcomed in Jesus himself as a refugee, and that actually happened throughout the New Testament era where Egypt was a fairly safe place to go to escape from Babylon. And so we see that either, even John Mark and others that spent time there. Um, and so, so that's fascinating, but at this point, it's, it's not safe. I was going to read this one other, this was one other phrase that I had found. So um, this says, this, the magic spells are divulged, and it lists two spells specifically, that they didn't know what they meant, but they just put the letters here, are frustrated because they're remembered by men um, there's another one about spells. Let me see if I can find it. It says, Behold, the secret of the land whose limits were unknown is divulged. Egypt is fallen to pouring of water. He who poured water on the ground is carried off the strong man in misery. Behold, the serpent is taken from its hole, and the secrets of the kings of upper and lower Egypt are divulged. And I don't know, like these, these are wild jumps, right? But if the serpent is taken from its hole, so, I, so here's, you've got... Pharaoh and his magicians, and they are loving, they, they have their serpents, they have all of their gods that they have everywhere. So think with me for a moment. If they're coming with their staff to Aaron, and if they're using sleight of hand to actually turn a staff into a snake instead of actually turning their rod into a snake, so then they take the, the, the Pharaoh's serpent, 
the, the whatever serpent it is, and they use it, and then it is eaten by Aaron's rod, then the serpent is removed from its hole. Anyway, this is, this is a complete, like, just, this is just me going, what happened to this serpent that is dis- missing from its hole? If you want to read the whole thing, it's actually quite, you can find it, you can read through it. There are sections of it missing that they have to say, we don't know what it says here. All of this is fascinating and interesting, and I'm reading it to you as if the guy who wrote it, Ipawar is his name, at least my pronunciation of his, of his name. I'm reading it to you as if it's a historical document, and that's the point. I'm also reading to you from Exodus as a historical document. I'm reading Psalms to you as a historical document. The admonitions of the Egyptian sage, I'm reading as a historical document while saying, I can't quite make sense of all this. I don't quite know exactly how all it applies. But the reason I say this is when I went looking for this, uh, worldhistory.org had a, 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 an article written on it by Joshua J. Mark. And he's just talking about this particular thing. And so he's talking about where it comes from, where they think, what time frame it would have landed. And so if you look for the admonitions of an Egyptian sage and you check the worldhistory.org one, you will find this article. And so what Joshua Mark talks about, uh, I wanted to read a section here where he's talking about the, the, the nature of the Egyptian wisdom texts. And he says, first of all, that it's difficult to actually date when this document was written. And that's good. But then he takes a moment to say how back in the 19th century, so this is the 1800s, it was common that uh, people were looking for physical evidence to corroborate the stories of the Bible. And so this paragraph, I'm going to read this paragraph. What these scholars found instead was the complete opposite of what they had expected. Prior to this time, the Bible was considered the oldest book in the world comprised of holy original literature. The work done by scholars from 1840 to 1900 brought to light the literature of ancient Mesopotamian Egypt and changed the way the Bible and world history were understood. So now listen to this, and I, I, I'm reading it here because you're going to hear these ideas in the world, and we need to understand what is our response to this. He says, the narratives of the Bible, so long thought to have been penned by God or God-inspired scribes, were now understood to have precedent in earlier works of other cultures. So what he's trying to say is that somebody read the admonitions of the Egyptian sage and then was like, oh yeah, I should write the Proverbs of Solomon or whatever. Um, and so that, that, you know, there's nothing, he's trying to make it sound as if there's nothing original over here. Now keep in mind, at the same time, he is also trying to say that there is actually no correlation between what is in this document and what is in this document. So he's making two arguments, and, and, and they can't both be true. Like he's, on one hand side, he's trying to say there is nothing from here that's in here, um, but the other hand side, he's saying everything that's in here was actually inspired by things like this. So his argument is two-faced to begin with, but there is a, a, a deeper problem here. The story of the fall of man, the great flood, the existential observations of Ecclesiastes, the concept of a dying and reviving God whose resurrection brings life to the world, all of these were recorded before the Hebrew scribes began writing the books which would eventually become the Bible. 
And so then he says this, even so, Egyptology and Near East studies still had a long way to go before it matured, and many texts were misinterpreted by those early scholars. Then he specifically mentions the book that I mentioned, The Admonitions of an Egyptian Sage. He says, when Gardner was working with the admonitions, the literature of the Middle East Kingdom, describing the time of the preceding, and he, um, well, the preceding, I'll just keep reading. The first, the preceding, the first intermediate period of Egypt was interpreted as historically accurate. The first intermediate period was commonly understood as a time of lawless chaos following the collapse of the old kingdom. And then he goes, actually, and puts his thoughts in here. And then he continues on to, to basically say, Scott, well, here's another section I'll read. Scholars working on these texts in the 19th and 20th centuries were operating from the old paradigm of the Bible as history, and so, except in cases of texts concerning obvious mythological themes and characters, literary works were taken as historical. According to Licktime, it was not until 1929 that the admonitions of Ippawar was first recognized as literature by the scholar S. Luria, who pointed out the fictional mytho mythologic messianic nature of these works and fixed cliches throughout through which the theme of social chaos was expressed. And so what he's saying is in 1929, there was a new enlightenment that explained, oh, this is not a historical document, the admonitions of the Egyptian sage. This is not really historical. This is just someone trying to explain how to deal with the grief of a chaotic world and how to function. And then he goes on to apply the same thing to our scriptures. And then he ends up, he actually cites that, the, that all scholars agree except for as recently as 2014, the documentary Patterns of Evidence Exodus claimed the admonitions of Ippuwar was historical reportage. An Egyptian view of the events given the biblical book of Exodus proving that work historically accurate. The companion book of the same name reasserts these claims as does the work by David Roll whose theories infuse and support the film and book Exodus, Myth, or History, which perpetuates the misunderstanding. However well-meaning these works may or may not be, they are intellectually and historically dishonest in how they represent the evidence they claim to be presenting impartially. Those who represent opposing views are dismissed as either atheists or blinded by mainstream scholarship, while literary and physical evidence is manipulated to prove the claims of the producers and writers. As Roll, talking about the guy who wrote the book, not Patterns of Evidence, but the other one, as Roll is an Egyptologist, one might wonder why he would advocate for an understanding of the work so completely at odds with accepted scholarship. The answer becomes fairly obvious if one is aware of Roll's repeated calls for a revision of Egyptian chronology. His fringe status among accepted scholars and his insistence on the historical truth of biblical narratives such as the book of Exodus his perpetuation of a misinterpretation of the text supports the claims he makes in books which have sold well and have conferred on him a degree of celebrity. So what happens is this fellow that writes about this is basically saying, we've got a problem with Egyptian chronology. If you watch Patterns of Evidence, and if, uh, there was another article that I really need to dig up again. Um, because I'm not, first of all, I'm not an Egyptologist. I'm not a archaeologist. And so when I read these things, I have to look at other things 
in general. And so for instance, to talk about accepted scholarship, one of the things I've noticed about accepted scholarship these days is that the way to be accepted is to make sure that whatever evidence you dig up does not corroborate or confirm the Bible. No matter how much it seems to align with history that is in the Bible. And if at any moment you start talking about this as historical, then um, you are immediately outside the scope of accepted scholarship. And so this is a serious problem because you're not allowed to approach any field of study that deals with history, whether it's archaeology, whether it's textual manuscripts and things. No matter what it is, you're not allowed to study or look at it with an open mind. You're not allowed to look at it and say, well, where do what, look what it says here, look what it says here, what's the time frame here. You're not allowed to ask questions. You have to only confirm the things that have already been said. And so my concern is simply that if for thousands of years, people were reading things like this and thinking that it was history. And then in 1929, we are so enlightened that now, this late in the game, we suddenly start reading it and say, oh, this is just a literature. It's not actually what happened. And if I'm then told that I need to take all of this and just call it literature instead of actual truth, what am I what am I left with? And here's what happens. He, he, he ends the article to say, to claim that literature or scripture must be true to be relevant diminishes the worth of such work collectively. And so then here's what he brings in. Moby Dick, the Divine Comedy, or Mahabharata are not factual works, but they are no less resonant for that. Further, it would be a disservice to any of these works, to any piece of literature, to use it in furthering one's personal agenda while disregarding its original purpose. The admonitions of Ippowar is a poignant expression of one writer's experience of life at a given time. Understood in this way, as literature, the work continues to speak through the centuries, mis misinterpreted and propagandized as history. The piece is meaningless because the history it represents never happened. That's how he ends his... his work on this. So here's the thing though. If you take something like Moby Dick and the author says in his own memoirs and other places and you can find it and it says that this is actual history and this is the way it actually happened, then you have to say, well, either the author is a liar or why does he write this as literature and yet it's history or vice versa. And so what Joshua Marks is missing is that when you have a document and the author claims it as being historical, then to say it is not historical is to call the document, it's the, to call the author a liar and the document itself becomes useless and meaningless. And so what he's trying to do is to say that it is a disservice to all of us to call this historical, the Bible historical. That's where this is really going. It's not just about this, this. He's trying to put a whole class of things that were written in the past. And so now this is, this is a very interesting thing because when you look at mythology, like the Greek mythology, when you look at um, Hindu mythology, you look at several other branches of mythology, when you ask the people 
who are actually propagating that mythology, like, is this true? Is this historical? They will usually say, no, no, it's just, this is the stories that we have for our mythology. This is, you know, and, and actually some, with Greek mythology especially, you can sometimes go find an earlier version of the same story that hasn't fully developed yet. And so then you keep going over the centuries and you find the next variation of it and you realize, oh, the mythology is still growing. And so I could take the Greek mythology, now maybe not me, but a, a, a Greek scholar or someone uh, in, a, in a more place of authority, right? I'm not an authority on Greek mythology, but if I was, I could potentially take two characters and say, did you know that these two actually interacted? And I could add another layer of Greek mythology because that's what they were doing with it. They were adding to it. In fact, when you chase back the the origins of Jupiter in Greek mythology is very likely that it was Japheth, the son of Noah, if you look where he was. And that because he lived for such a long time, it became legendary and you spoke of this Japheth, which Jupiter was the name because of the pater part of it, the father Japheth. So if you put that together and you go back and you find, and then because he lived for so long after the flood, while well, other men were already dying, and so he becomes legendary, right? And so then you start adding, you know? And so if you claim the, the mythology, all the things that have been said as history, that's one thing. One of the things that Christianity has never done is said, well, we have a collection of mythology. We've always, since the beginning, said, this is the account of what God has done. This is the account of what God did in the beginning. This is the account of what God's going to do in the end. And so we have always looked at this. We have never said, this is purely literature that someone wrote for the fun of it. The prophet Isaiah, the prophet Jeremiah, they didn't take the you know, Jeremiah didn't spend time in the pit just to write literature. He was hearing from God and he was writing it down and he was suffering for it. So I, I want to talk about this because we're going to run into these concepts out there. And sometimes the very simple thing of saying, no, actually, I believe the Bible is true and that it's not only true in a good sort of way, but that it is the truth historically accurate. Like it, it may not primarily be a history book, and yet it is the story of how God interacts with his people from the beginning. And so from that sense, you'd say it's a, it's a very good history book. And, and I want to, so first of all, I, I just wanted to go read what the Egyptian sage was saying, but in accessing that document, I found so much of this other worldview going on that I realized this is something we do need to talk about and we need to consider why is this happening? And so there are many, many people who are involved in archaeology and other things that in today's day and age, some of them are very frustrated because when they go to do work, they find out, oh, you're not allowed to do this kind of work or this. You have to only do the accepted sorts of work for right now. And so it takes, it's, it's the same thing when you go to science you know, the whole thing where people say never question science, that whole thing that came out through COVID, that's ridiculous because all science has ever done was ask questions. Like that is what science is. It questions and says, why? Why? How? And that's how science works, by questioning. And so if you are not allowed to question, you cannot be a scientist because you have to be able to question everything. 
And if something is true for one scientist, another scientist says, really, you did that? And he goes to his lab and he tries to repeat it. And then he, cop he writes his paper and says, so I did what they said and it almost worked, except I also had to use a little bit of copper manganese or something, you know? And so they talk about what they did. And so then, the, then this paper is written and then the next guy reads and they say, really, that's interesting. Well, if that's true, and then there's this guy over here that was doing this, if I do that and that and put this to And so your whole process of science is going, I wonder, and you're asking questions and you're considering things. And every so often someone comes out and says, guys, I asked some questions and it led me to this moment. And there's a light bulb, there's a telephone, there's all of those things. And so someone comes along and says, oh, that's witchcraft. He says, no, no, it's science. Let me show you how it works. And you can actually ask questions about it. They explain it and you can recreate it because it's science. And science can be questioned. Science can be confirmed, can be repeated. So now when we come to history, we suddenly have to be careful because while history is one of the sciences and archaeology is one of the sciences, it is not science in the same way in that I cannot recreate history in my lab. I have to go with the evidence that's there. And so here comes the entire discipline of understanding how do we look at texts and manuscripts, how do we verify them, how do we confirm them. And historically speaking, if I want to know what Martin Van Buren said at his inaugural address, I look for the reports. And so there is this newspaper has this report in it, and then this newspaper has this report in it. And if they both report the same thing, that is a witness that says, ah, he probably said this at his inaugural address. If, however, this newspaper reports like vast amounts of information and this one has complete other information, and a third one has completely different information, I, I have to make a decision on what did the man actually say? And I'm looking for anything that the three reports actually confirm, and if I find anything at all that overlaps, I say, okay, this is probably what he said. And so this is the way textual situation, uh, 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 textual um, credibility is developed. We look at a document, we look at the time frame which it's which is written in, and then we look at other documents at the same time or about the same time, and we say, what is shared? And so when you're, when you're going through, and you, you find, uh, you know, in, in, later, and you're going through archaeology, and you find the Dickens' uh, A Christmas Carol, and so you start saying, well, what time frame was this? Did spirits normally come clanking chains into everyone's chamber? And so you check all the rest of literature and only thing you're finding at that time frame is Dickens' Christmas Carol. And at some point you start saying, okay, we think based on the other things the author wrote and other things we found, we think this is actually more of a um, piece of literature where he's trying to give an, a story of how something could have been. Spiritually speaking, we don't think that there actually was this spirit with actual chains uh, actually clanking through um, we don't, and so, so you're, but you're comparing manuscripts and history, right? So that's a whole different discipline by itself. It's, to me, that sounds like a fun one to do, but when I have to do it myself, I get a little bored sometimes. And I'm like, okay, so this one says this, and this one says this. And so like, I, I actually am, I like to read things. 
and I want to enjoy it. That's what I'm after. And so when I'm looking at documents, I'm trying to understand, you know, get to the point, tell me what's going on. And so what I, what I was frustrated with this Egyptian sages document was I couldn't always come to the point. What is the man saying? He ends the whole thing in the end by saying, he, he mentions different Greek gods earlier, or not Greek, Egyptian gods earlier, but he ends it at the past. He says, what Ippor said when, addressed, when he addressed the majesty of the Lord of all. That's his opening phrase for his last couple paragraphs. The things that Ippor said when he addressed the majesty of the Lord of all. And so when I'm looking at that going, well, who does he mean? Because earlier when he wanted to say Ra or Re, he actually wrote that. But now he says the majesty of the Lord of all. Is he talking about the, the God of the Hebrews who says he's the Lord of all? Like, what, what does he mean? And so those are things that I would have to, if, if I was going to be looking at e- Egyptian documents to understand what that means, I'd have to go and find all the other Egyptian papyrus and say, do they have a phrase, the majesty of the Lord of all? And who do they mean when they say that? And so if, if I went and looked at all the other documents and if I found that phrase and, and could clearly say, oh, that's referring to one of their deities, that would help me in understanding who this guy is referring to. But it would have to be, I would have to treat it in that same historical sense. So the question that I wanted to bring us, and I just, I threw all this out there. There's, there are a lot of different ways of talking about this, but because he dragged the Bible into this literature business and was saying it's not historical, but it's just literature, I said, well, let's, let's actually talk about that because here's, here is one of, the, one of the things you do with a text is you compare it with itself and you say, what does it claim to be? Does it live up to its claims? Can it actually defend itself? And so in scripture, there's quite a bit of things that are just presented as history, as truth, as this is what happened. It doesn't even use the words, as it were, or anything like that. It just says, this is what happened. Moses went into Pharaoh and said, and then this happened and then that happened. That's just what, it, that, that's how it deals with it. It presents itself as a historical document. And so if you look over in John 17, starting in verse 15, we have Jesus praying for his disciples. And I come straight to the words of Jesus because at one point Jesus, the, the, in the Gospel of John, it says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so we have some sort of a witness between the written word of God and the living word of God. And there's something happening here that is a spiritual, uh, really a miracle of what God did on earth. And so it's important for us to Start with, well, Jesus, what does he say? So this is Jesus. He's praying for the believers, the, for his apostles and those who would come later. So starting in verse 15, John 17, verse 15, it says, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me throughout, through their word, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. So there is Jesus saying, your word is truth. When he says that, he's actually, I believe, quoting from Psalm 119, If you go back to Psalm 119, it's a very large psalm, but in verse 160, I believe it is, 
Psalm 119. If I can read my own handwriting over there. So this is the very end of the section that's under Rush. Uh, it says Psalm 119, verse 160 says, The entirety of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. And so I bring this together because Jesus quotes that your word is truth. When you go back and you look at the psalm, it says the entirety of your word is truth. So Jesus is referring to Psalm 119, 160, so we could say, well, Psalms is just, it's just literature. But Jesus is referring to it and he's speaking it and he says, your word is truth. He's praying to God, his father, saying your word is truth. And he's quoting from this Psalm and we have this, the entirety of your word is truth. Then you look at what the apostles thought, like uh, 1 Thessalonians 2.13 First Thessalonians 2.13 is he says, for this reason, we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. And so I wanted to bring these three verses together. And then I just wanted to, for us, as we read through Exodus, it is vitally important for us that when we read the scripture, that we are reading it as something that actually happened. See, when you go dig in the dirt and you find remnants of something, you have to ask a lot of questions and you have to see if there's anything here that will, that will bear witness of what time frame we're in and what's going on. And so depending where you dig, you'll find very little of anything. Depending where you dig, you find all kinds of stuff. So like if you go to Jerusalem and like right now, if you were to dig through the Temple Mount, you would find what they're calling the Temple Mount, you'd find a whole bunch of stuff there. Um, if you just move over 150, well, I don't actually know how many yards it is. It's not that many yards over to where the temple very probably actually used to be. Um, then you will find even more if you dig underneath the city there. And so anywhere in Jerusalem you dig, you'll start finding stuff. If you go to Egypt and you start digging, you find stuff. And some of the things you find, you go, wow, what is this? And if you, if you don't ask any other question other than what is this, what does it look like? And then you start looking at all the Egyptian writings that have been written and all the other ancient texts that have been written about Egypt. And you say, oh, this looks like it would be this and it would apply to this. That would be archaeology. If you were to take the texts of the world, the history texts of the world, look for things hidden in the dirt and say, do any of these correlate? Now, if I do that, I might say, well, this is obviously this spot. And then later someone else says, but did you consider this other text? And I have to read it and go, oh, well, based on that, we might be wrong. And you have to like adjust things, right? So I understand the need to adjust things as we discover them from an archeological perspective. What is not okay is to pretend that in the 1900s, we are suddenly so much smarter than everyone who's gone before that we can erase the historical record and say, you know what? We're just going to start from scratch. We're going to look at what we find in the dirt and we're going to tell you what happened. And we're not going, and, and, no, no, not your history. That's not history. It's just literature. This is man vaunting himself against God and saying, I am wiser 
than all who have gone before me. I am wiser than all, and, and, and just literally wanting to erase everything and start over. And that's not okay. And the reason it's not okay is because according to this book, there is a king, the creator king, who visited us and spoke to us very specific things that have to do with our future, that have to do with our past, that have to do with where we are now and what's going to happen to us once we die. And he says very specific things about that while confirming the historicity of everything that came before. And if we call him a liar, he is our only hope. And so we, in effect, are denying Christ when we try to deny that his literature that he is in is actually truth. And so it's important for us as believers because there is coming a time I don't know if it's going to be 50 years. I don't know if it's going to be 150 years, but there's coming a time whether on earth under the current circumstances or whether it will be from the perspective of eternity where the ones who are speaking lofty words about this just being literature, their ideas are going to look absolutely foolish. That time is coming. We've already gone through a few such scenarios where someone came up with an idea and later people look at it and say, that, that's just kind of ridiculous, you know? Like, you know? And one of the times that this happened was just simply when we finally saw the pictures of what a developing baby looks like inside a mother's womb. We had had sketches. We had great people talking about, oh, what this looks like and how this one is like that. And they had, they had drawn this all out. They were wrong. And not only were they wrong, they were ridiculously wrong. And so we look at it because we now have history. We say, well, we can actually tell you exactly what a baby looks like at six weeks development. We can tell you what it looks like at six months. We can tell you every piece of it because we can actually look inside the mother's womb while the baby is just doing his little stuff and we can take actual images of what's happening. And so the technology of our day suddenly makes the ideas of those days look ridiculous. And the technology of our day confirms with what it says in the scripture where it says, in your mother's womb, I was knitting you together. And suddenly we say, ah, God was right in this again. And so this is important for us that we understand. And here's, you know, as I was looking at this and I was trying to think through how to explain what I mean when I say we have to be very careful that because when we're, when we're consigning something just to be literature and not making it history, well, pretty soon Josephus is literature. Everything we can find anywhere just becomes literature, mythology, and it means nothing. And then our life means nothing. And we mean nothing and nothing means anything. And it, we have a meaningless world. But the creator said that it means something and that we should remember him and that we should praise him and that we should worship him and that there is coming a day when we will be with him. That's what the creator said and his book bears this up. And so if, if someone comes along and says, ah, can you really believe that? What are we gonna do? How are we going to respond? And so, and, and I bring it up because even my, you know, as I'm reading things, there are times when I start going, I don't know, I'm looking at all of this and then I have to just look like with um, just that simple article that I read this week, by reading the entire article, I get to the point where he says, starting in 1929, we discovered. How did we make that discovery in 1929? Well, those are important things to look at because sometimes the discoveries that were made in 1929 weren't really discoveries. 
there were somebody writing a paper saying, what if? And everyone says, aha, if we went with your idea, we could get rid of the God of the Bible. I'm with you on that one. Let's do that. And that's literally what happens. They don't want the God of the Bible. They don't want a judge of the whole earth. They don't want to face a final judge. They want to forget all of that. And so if they can find a path forward that does not include God, that's the path they want. And some of them don't even know that they want it, but the writing bears it out where they're basically bringing it out. So here's the, for us, when we look at the scripture and we say, how do I know this is true? We have a person in the scripture, Jesus Christ. And so what Jesus says about himself, what Jesus says about the word of God and what the other, all the other texts say together, I think it is appropriate for us to say, well, if we could disprove Christ, we can disprove scripture and vice versa. And so, for instance, when, when, if you remember the quote, you've all heard this quote from C.S. Lewis. But what this man is, intent, is basically saying is, and if you read it, you'll understand, he says that, you know, this is nice literature, and as long as I don't call it history, then it can have meaning for me. Because I'll be like, oh, this makes me feel fuzzy when I'm reading this because I'm going through this at the same time. And, uh, you know, the, this poor guy who wrote Lamentations, he went through a hard time. I'm going through a hard time. And so it helps me because he, he wrote this poetically. Well, I'll tell you something. It means a lot more to me when I read it and go, this guy was dealing with actual problems. There were real issues there were sinful people who were in power. There were problems in the land, and he struggled with how to make it all fit. And when I read what he dealt with and how he came back and said this, I called to mind, and he talks about the faithfulness of God, and that, therefore he has hope. Well, I also recall the faithfulness of God, and therefore I have hope, that God's mercies are new every morning. I suddenly, because it's real, it brings me way more than fuzzies. It brings me the ability to wake up in the morning and to face a broken world and say, no, I'm here and I represent the living God and I will see him one day. And this is true. This is worth a lot more as the truth, as actually what it happened than it is as some literature that I assign meaning to whatever I need. Here's C.S. Lewis's quote talking about Jesus. That's from Mere Christianity. I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said that the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a... Do you say lunatic or lunatic? What do you say? Lunatic? Okay, I had a sudden brain. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He was not, he has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So I think we can say the same thing. We cannot call this, oh, this is good literature. Because if it's just literature, it lies. The only thing that this can be is the word of the living God. And so we cannot make it something else. 
It's not mildly good or moderately helpful. It either is the full truth or it's a lie. And so we cannot go on this in-between little road and be like, oh, it's helpful for people if they need it. No, this is either the absolute truth from the King of Kings and Lord of Lords or it's a lie. And when you look at what is written here and you look at history and you try to disprove this, you will run into Jesus Christ, the author of the universe, over and over and over again. And so when we read through Exodus and we're talking about the, the plagues and other things, it's not figurative speech. It's not literature. It's history. It is what happened. And I think it's important for us to not allow ourselves to say, well, you know, maybe this would... No, it is history. This is what happened. When it says that there were so many locusts that you couldn't see the face of the earth, there were so many locusts that you couldn't see the face of the earth. When it was so dark that you could feel it, it was so dark that you could feel it. This is the word of God. And it's important for us to embrace it as such and to embrace the Jesus that it, it, all of the word of God is pointing to and to submit our lives to him. And to not allow the, 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 all the different deceptions of our day to come in and try to cast doubt and say, well, what if, what if, what if? Because there's, there are many deceptions, and many of them are in the church even now, in the United States especially, where there's many people trying to say, well, look, you can keep your Jesus, but maybe drop this. You can keep your Jesus uh, as long as it makes you kind and whatever. But if it, you know, and so there's a lot of like, yes, but... And so what we want to look at is say, no, I'm 100% surrendering myself to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords as he is portrayed in this book. And it's history. He gave me history. And no matter what field I go into, if I go into archaeology, I will be informed by this book. If I go into mathematics, I will be informed by this book. If I go into biology, I will be informed by this book. If I go into filmmaking, I will be informed by this book. If I go into catering, I will be informed by this book. No matter what I do, if I'm a computer programmer, no matter, no matter what I do, I will be informed by what this book says. And I will allow this book to inform my work in the field that, I ha- that I'm working in for my livelihood. That's important. Let's pray. Father, you've made it very clear in your word that your word is truth and that the lies of people will pass away. And there is coming a day when all will be known, that the, everything that is whispered in a closet will be shouted from the housetop. And so, Father, I ask you for all of us that are in here, Lord, would you shine your light into the dark crevices of our mind and our existence? And Lord, if there are places where we have allowed the cobwebs of doubt to come in, and we have put in little bottles of like, well, you know, maybe, but I have this other option. Lord, that we would come through our entire being and we would search ourselves out before you and that we would 100% build our life on the truth that is you. You are the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Christ. And so, Father, we thank you for that. Thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you for being the eternal Godhead three in one. Thank you for sending the Holy Spirit to us now. And Father, I pray that each of us would be able to walk in truth with confidence. And Lord, that even as 
all around us, things become muddled and dark and confusion comes. Lord, you actually involved in your plagues. The final plague was darkness and that it just seems so fitting, Lord, that when men harden their hearts, darkness comes. But when we believe your word, there's light in our little house, just as it was in the houses of the Israelites while there was darkness in Egypt. You had light in their houses. Father, we love you. Thank you for loving us and giving us your word. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.